Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode on a topic of interest to almost all shoulder surgeons, which is how to rehabilitate the injured shoulder and athlete. Um, and I've invited two world-renowned experts to discuss. Both of our guests have worked with a large volume of high-level high athletes from multiple sports. They've succeeded in them getting back to play. So first, we have Kevin Wilk, who's the head of Champion Sports Medicine in Birmingham, Alabama. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Great. Great to be here, Dr. Chambers. Um, and then next, we have Stan Conti. Stan is the former trainer of both the Giants and the Dodgers and is currently the Senior Director of Medical Services for the Marlins. Stan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This will be fun. Okay, let's get started. So how did each of you get involved in rehabilitating the athletes? So Stan, tell us, how did you get involved in this field? Yeah, I, um, I started in private practice uh, and way back in the 1980s and uh, had a couple uh, private practices uh, that saw some sports medicine uh, high school, college, uh, and eventually started seeing a couple professional athletes. And um, at the time, the San Francisco Giants uh, had uh, one athletic trainer, and they asked me to start seeing their uh, disabled list people. And then eventually, I ended up working uh, at the Candlestick in San Francisco with the Giants. And somehow, I forgot to go home, and I kept going with the Giants for, for 14 years and then uh, on with the Dodgers. So uh, I kind of started out, like uh, uh, most people, seeing a lot of different type of uh, athletes and then eventually kind of concentrate on the professional ranks. And um, what about you, Kevin? How did you first get involved with uh, treating athletes? Uh, mine's pretty similar to what Stan mentioned. Uh, so I started in the mid-80s as well and uh, started right off in sports medicine in a small practice. And uh, from there, I progressed to a a different practice uh, in Chicago who uh, the physicians I worked closely with took care of the Chicago White Sox. So at the time, just like Stan said, in the 80s, it was pretty unusual to have multiple trainers or PT. I think the Dodgers were probably the only ones to have a PT on, the, on staff at that time. So um, the White Sox uh, had, I think, two trainers at the time, maybe a part-time third, I think. But at any rate, uh, they asked me to do some of the rehab for the guys who were staying behind, not traveling, those types of things. It kind of evolved over the next couple of years. And I met a, a physician, Dr. James Andrews, at a conference, and um, he talked me into uh, coming down to Birmingham, convinced me that they were building a big sports medicine program in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I came down here in 89 and have been here ever since. And as a result, um, obviously with Dr. Andrews, we see a lot of baseball players. I had a couple uh, uh, consulting uh, positions with the, the Rays, the first Devil Rays, then Rays. And now just basically we just see independent players. Uh, Dr. Andrews at the time was a medical director for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. I, I wish I could go back in time and be present at the meeting where you and Jimmy Andrews met each other. T tell, give us, is there a story there? Tell us what that was like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a long story. I'll, I'll try to paraphrase, but we were in Cincinnati at the Dr. Noyes meeting, and a friend of mine, Bob Mangine, uh, was running the meeting, 
and he knew that I was going to leave Chicago. I had interviewed in New York uh, for a job, and I interviewed at UCLA in L.A., and I liked both, and I said to Bob, I said, I'm going to move. I'm going to leave Chicago. I'm just trying to figure this out. Do I want to live in New York and work with those guys or go out to UCLA who was building a program? And uh, he said, well, first you need to talk to Dr. Andrews. He's building a program in Birmingham. I didn't even really know where Birmingham, Alabama was, to be honest. Uh, I was a Chicago guy and um, came down uh, a couple times and visited. At the time, it was Health South, and Health South was just starting out. And the irony of that whole story is, um, as a result of me taking that position, I met Stan. And Stan and I <laughs> were on multiple clinical uh, programs for Health South as far as protocol development and outcome studies and Stan and I often sat next to one another at those meetings for several years, right, Stan? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what you're leaving out, though, is there was a time that you came out to San Francisco uh, entertaining a potential job um, out, out in San Francisco. Uh, I think we yeah. showed you candlestick and you and you ran back to Birmingham. But, but uh, yeah, that was, <laughs> I do remember you coming out and uh, looking for a position out uh, in beautiful California. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was a great trip. I remember hanging out with you at Candlestick and loved it and would have taken that job until I looked at houses <laughs> and, and couldn't afford uh, the garage part of the house. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about until we started talking here is uh, the number of people, clinicians that end up being friends and and collaborating on different studies and doing different things over the decades, uh, which uh, uh, has always been kind of kind of fun, um, and makes the United States a little smaller, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, you make some of your best friends that way too, collaborating with these studies and going to meetings and the camaraderie and so forth. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think one of the the real insights you could probably give our listeners, many of whom are surgeons, is you know how to collaborate as a surgeon with a therapist, especially when it comes to getting an athlete back to play, someone where you really need to be in depth with the rehab, you wanna be specific with the restrictions. You guys have worked with a huge variety of surgeons. So what I wanna hear is what are the surgeon habits that are most helpful and what are the ones that most hinder the athlete's rehabilitation? in terms of communication, in terms of how the protocol is written out. Tell us, Kevin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a big component. And, um, you know, I've, I've done this a long time, just like Stan. I'm, I'm sure he can speak to this quite nicely as well. You know, we've seen the best. and We've seen probably some of the, the ones that we wish could get a little better with it. But it's uh, availability, accessibility of the, the, of the MD. It's the team approach, you know, which is always a cliche. It's communication. Communication is the key. And, you know, quite honestly, I think I've worked with the best. Um, I'm a little biased, but Dr. Andrews, for instance, you could call him on a Sunday. You're seeing a patient on Monday morning, and he did surgery on them on Friday. And, well, it wouldn't happen that way, actually. He would have called me on, on Friday night to tell me what's going on. Um, I've never seen anybody more accessible and willing to share information than Dr. Andrews. And as a result, I think, you know, I think patients love that. They know that when they see that therapist, whether it's me or somebody else or Stan, if it's one of his players, you've already communicated with the physician. The physician told you, hey, I did a slap repair, but 
they realized that the slap repair, you know, was a little bit larger, it was a peel back and three anchors, but the cuff was a little beat up and had a little bit of changes on the humeral head. You know, the stuff you don't have in op reports. And also for me, working with a, a Dr. Andrews or a Dr. Dugas or Dr. Kane, they give me their opinion a little bit. You know what I mean? Hey, on this one, it was a little stiff in the in the OR, like an ACL patient I'm dealing with now that's a pro basketball player. And even the OR, the ACL, after they put it in, the range was a little stiff. And, you know, just so you know, this is what I'm, I'm struggling with or wasn't that comfortable with the meniscus repair, so go slower. It was a big root tear. Those are invaluable um, information points that if I went somewhere and I didn't have that, and sometimes we do, we get outside referrals, and it's, you know they don't, a physician might not answer the phone or they don't get back to us. You almost feel a little lost, if that makes sense, uh, because you're so used to knowing the ins and outs of the surgery or what the physician is thinking. It, it really makes my job a lot easier. And to be honest with you, or I shouldn't say honest, I, I should say to be very direct with you, in my mind, I think that ensures a better outcome for the patient. What do you think, Stan? Yeah, what, what else would think? you add? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think uh, um, Kevin really hit on the main porch. Maybe I'll look at the other side. Uh, communication is critical. There's no doubt about that. And um, and I think in general, um, it's about staying in your lane. In other words, a physician does the surgery. Uh, I would not tell the physician what surgery to do or how to do that technique. And the same goes for the rehab. Uh, the expertise in rehab uh, and early rehab, middle rehab, and return to play uh, is under the preview of the, of the physical therapist or sometimes the athletic trainer. And uh, one, there has to be a lot of confidence between the two. Uh, and that gets to the communication and gets to, to know people. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting. And I'll tell this quick story. And it's been public, so I'm not giving away any secrets. You know, I had an opportunity to work with Neil Elitrage in Los Angeles with the Dodgers and, um, uh, and also with Frank Job. Um, uh, he was kind of walking away from baseball because he was, um, you know, a little bit uh, ill. And Dr. Elitrage took over uh, as a team physician. And he had not really been a team physician before. And he came in and he started telling us what to do. And um, he and I eventually had a, 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 a little conference in the back room where I, I said, listen, um, you're a great orthopedic surgeon uh, and you're a great surgeon. I said, you're going to have to let me teach you how to be a team physician and what it takes to be that. Um, and um, Neil kind of looked at me and said, kind of looked at me like he was about to to, to punch me out, and he said, well, what does that take? And I said, let me tell you how this works, and he, he and I work together uh, with the players. So it is not the doctor's patient, and it's not the therapist's patient. It is the group, and, and, and Kevin said it, you know, the team approach, which is a cliche, but it very rarely happens. Uh, and once you have that synergy, uh, and, and the ability to talk with the physician and also the physician being able to talk to you, uh, then it, it works really great for the patient. And when something goes bad, uh, both people are engaged in trying to figure out how it's fixed without 
pointing the finger at anybody. And, uh, uh, and it's, in the professional level, it's critical. And I have had physicians um, who uh, didn't do that, and the outcomes were easily not as good. Certainly, I think the latter can be really important when it comes to return to play um, and the decision as to when is ready, someone's ready. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of this clearance for return to play and how we make those decisions. And um, certainly, I think there are certain parameters of we know what this, you know, this injury takes this long to heal, but also there's, you know, the functional aspect to it. So tell me a little bit about what you're using as your criteria for return to play and how you're making those decisions specifically for shoulder injuries. What do you think, Stan? Well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, the return to play sometimes is talked about uh, as the, the end point. It really isn't the end point. The return to play starts almost right after the surgery. So one of the things that we've learned is, yes, the shoulder is important, it's had an operation, but uh, as we see a lot, the shoulder is uh, an innocent bystander a lot of times in regards, especially on pitchers, uh, because of the kinetic chain. And so one of the things that looks in return to play, as opposed to the criteria, uh, is, you know, what are you going to do to get them to that point where they can actually start be doing baseball activities? And that, that starts at the very beginning uh, of, of what you're doing. Uh, and if it's a, a six-month rehab thing, it really starts right when the rehab starts. So you can start working on core, you start working on hip hip, uh, and other areas in the closed kinetic chain in order that when the shoulder is ready, everything else is ready. So that's, that's a real important part of the, this whole thing. But as far as criteria go, at the professional level, it's relatively easy because you're right with the baseball people every day. So, you know, as you start to get the range of motion, the strength and, and the scapular uh, 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 making the scapular work, which I think is probably more critical than anything else in the shoulder, uh, is, uh, you know, before you get into that, you're able to be, you literally walk outside and you have a field. So you can start running programs, you can start doing those things. We do a lot of plyometric uh, work uh, to, to determine from a shoulder standpoint when they're ready to actually start tossing a ball. And the progressions uh, on that are general, but they have to be very specific to the other one, to the other thing. So eventually at the professional level, we're able to actually get them in simulated games and then rehab games to see if they're ready to actually get back to full activity at whatever level, minor league or major league that they're able to do. So it's very easy at the professional level. I'll turn it back over to Kevin because Kevin works with people that uh, – he has to do long term, long long distance, and, and not necessarily a, a field right there to go out to. But that's that's kind of what I look at right from the beginning. I'm looking at the kinetic chain, and the shoulder is part of it, and we concentrate on that early. But uh, at the end, if the kinetic chain is not right, then you're going to end up with the same problem you had prior to surgery. Yeah, I think. Stan brought out some great points, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, it's critical, and also to Stan's point, you know, it's a little different when you're in the, the team environment versus a, a physical therapist who, or athletic trainers working in a clinic situation where people are coming and going. 
it's a little harder to manage because we have limitations in visits and you know as far as number per week uh, things of that nature and there's other variables that come into play for the outpatient rehab setting such as coaches the family um, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to control that but um, as far as our criteria to go back a um, couple things one is one of the most important ones is to be on the same page as the physician I just had this conversation the other day with a doctor after UCL reconstruction and this young man plays a uh, professional baseball he's in minor leagues he's getting ready to go to Arizona here in about a month and uh, he wants to know when he can start throwing so I'm not going to answer that question in isolation. I have to call the physician, see what his mindset is. I have to call the organization, talk to the rehab coordinator or the head athletic trainer and say, what is, what is your philosophical approach in your organization? But also for this individual time frame, he's not going to pitch this year. So obviously he has a lot of time. He's four and a half months post UCL. He's anxious to start throwing. He looks great. And so what we do is we go through a, a functional test series so we can report that back to the physician and the trainer or the rehab coordinator. But that decision in that pro athlete um, time frame is made as a team. I don't want to say, <laughs> if you know what I mean, I don't want to say, hey, we start you at four months when the physician says, no, I wanted to wait till six. And the organization said, well, I wanted to wait till five. You know what I mean? It would be a very mixed message and would make us not look very good as a team approach to it. So that's some of the nuances behind the scenes uh, that I think a therapist, athletic trainer working in a clinic situation outside the organization has to consider. For us, we look at range of motion, obviously. Um, we look at clinical exam, let's say if it's an elbow or a shoulder. In this case, I know this is a shoulder uh, a podcast, so we would do special tests that we think were appropriate for us. If it was a slap repair, do some type of slap test, something like that. We would do a strength test. Years ago, I used to do isokinetics. Now I use more handheld dynamometry. I look at ERIR, deltoid strength, and the four movements at the scapula, elevation, uh, depression, protraction, retraction. And I generally look at bilateral but unilateral muscle ratios. Um, down here in Birmingham, it's a big thing with the Andrews group that all these individuals have done plyos before starting a throwing program. So I've got to make sure that this athlete has done plyometrics. And it's just like saying, well, you did your rehab. Uh, just because you say you did plyos, I want to know what plyos did you do. And to Stan's excellent points about the connect chain, that means two-hand throws with rotation, using your hips, engaging your core those types of plyos. Then we do what we call ball drop testing. Person lays on the table, arm is up at 90 degrees, two pound ball. They drop and catch at 30 seconds. We count the number of uh, drops and catches. So they drop it, catch it before it hits the ground. And we would compare that to the opposite side. We would want a 10% increase versus the non-throwing shoulder. Then we do a ball throw up against the wall. It's a two pound ball and they basically throw it baseball style up against the wall. They're very close, they do it for 30 seconds. They do it on their throwing side or injured side and their uninjured side, and we look for the difference. Again, we want 10% uh, percent greater. Then we ask them to do a single leg squat test. We put a chair behind them just in case they lose it, uh, and we see in 30 seconds how many single leg squats you do one side to the other. We have some normative data on that. 
And then lastly, we do a plank test, prone on, on elbows, toes and elbows, uh, they plank, and we count the minutes or seconds that they're able to plank. Uh, we're looking for anywhere between 60 to 120 seconds. We add up their scores. To date, um, I'm looking at it right now, we have tested, oh God, I just lost it, sorry about that. <laughs> We've tested uh, 281 healthy players and 98 UCL repairs or reconstructions. So we have a pretty good database as far as this for normative, and it's at various levels, professional, high school, and college. Certainly those kind of tests are so useful for the listeners to understand, like, because a lot of those are things you can pretty easily do in clinic to test. I wanted to talk, you know, a little bit about the shoulder and throwers. Both of you have such a wealth of experience getting throwers back. I, as, a, as a shoulder physician, I think one of the more difficult patients to see in clinic can be the thrower who comes with shoulder pain who's kind of just working through internal impingement. There's a little bit of cuff tendinitis. There's a little bit of posterior superior fraying. You know, it's a player who's saying, my shoulder hurts, I can't throw. But you look at it and you think, this is not surgical. This is not like there's something structurally torn. This patient has a just a shoulder that needs to be basically tuned back up. So I wanted to get at a high level, you know, when you when I see this patient as a surgeon, what should I emphasize to set that patient up for success when they come in and see the therapist to start really working on that? What are your thoughts, Stan? Well, I think, first of all, you know, uh, uh, you have to evaluate the, the player first to see exactly where he is. Range of motion-wise, uh, look at deficiencies and that type of thing. Now, I will tell you, though, uh, to get more, a little, maybe a little bit more general, um, uh, if the guy has an internal impingement, um, I actually start working with the pelvis first. I know that seems crazy because uh, it's got a shoulder problem. Uh, if he's a thrower, the question is, why did he end up with an internal impingement? And the two areas that I've spent a ton of time on is the pelvis, um, not, not as much the core. I mean, the core has to be stable, uh, but it, the, the lumbar spine shouldn't rotate in, uh, much at all. The, pe the pelvis is what rotates. Um, and so work on that type of movement pattern and how to um, uh, activate muscles in the lower extremity to get the pelvis to rotate. And when you start looking at biomechanics on this, you can see that if, that, uh, if the pelvis does not rotate or it takes a long time to rotate, then shoulder uh, hip separation does not occur. And then at the end of that, that chain, is that poor shoulder that's got to do more work than it's designed to do. So we do work at that. The second part is we go after the scapula. And um, uh, I believe for years and years and years, I've totally missed the point on the scapula. Uh, and we think of a head of the humerus on the glenoid and lack, lack of uh, internal rotation or interior impingement where, where the head of the humerus is in there. I actually look at it differently, and that is it's not the head of the humerus on the glenoid. It's the glenoid on the humerus in the state and where the, the scapula is. And so what we do a lot of is concentrate a lot, and when I say a lot, I'm talking about a lot of reps, a lot of volume, and a lot of um, uh, resistance training to the serratus anterior. The serratus anterior is the key muscle. When you look at baseball, whether it's a pitcher or whether it's a hit, hitter, um, the, in, in my view, 
uh, it's almost all protraction. So uh, what we do in strengthening the, the scapula, for instance, is we do a lot of retraction, which definitely strengthens the, the scapular muscles. But in baseball, if you look at this, if you look at a hitter and you look at a pitcher, uh, they're not over the top. They're not at 90 degrees of, of flexion. Um, they're at, at really about 90 to 100 degrees of uh, abduction. And when you look through that, what they have to do is protract the scapula, not upwardly rotate it. And so I think that we end up having the upper trap that works and, and should be quiet and, and not fire at all and be able to protract. So we spend a ton of time uh, working on the pelvis and the scapula, not for just a period of time, but we put it in their program. And what we'll do is do a, a lot of exercise uh, uh, compartments, if you will. You know, you do one set, three sets of one series of exercise. Another one, you might do that three or four different uh, groups, and each one has a serratus anterior and a pelvic muscular exercise that goes into that. And then when you start getting into the plyometrics, you end up actually teaching them how to move um, the way that you should in order to throw a baseball and uh, to hit. So those are the two areas I look at. Now, obviously, you work on the shoulder, especially after surgery, but if, if they're having that, you're looking at rotator cuff strength. Everything that Kevin talked about, you have to, that's the, the definitely the minimum standards to be able to decide uh, where you're going to do that and what, and, and analyzing what is weak and what needs to be strengthened in your program. But I can tell you, we've seen internal rotation deficits decrease just by putting the scapula in the right place and being able to dynamically uh, be able to protract and increase interrotation without stretching uh, or doing anything like that. So that's kind of the, the, the way I uh, approach it. Now, Kevin, I know you've done a ton of research on, on this concept, GERD, and I, I still hear people say, oh, the problem is GERD and that's the cause of internal impingement. Tell us your current thoughts on GERD. Does it play a role in internal impingement? And then I'm also, you know, you taught me a great exercise for serratus. I'm hoping you can share with the listeners. Yeah, for, uh, yeah, a couple things. Um, you know, with internal impingement, just as what was alluded to by Stan, I mean, it's so multi-faceted. Uh, and what I mean by that is if I see a high school kid with internal impingement, they present many times differently than a professional. Um, or another sport, for instance, like volleyball, for instance, which is, pretty common to have similar complaints uh, of posterior pain right at the infraspinatus at the joint line, sometimes even tennis players. So it depends many times for me how the athlete looks physically, if they're developed, believe it or not. Like a high school kid many times is underdeveloped and has hypermobility and maybe throwing mechanics uh, versus the pro that really needs maybe a little bit more fine tuning. But, you know, our approach the internal impingement is um, we try to attack the area so it's a little bit different than what Stan portrayed but but we do the same thing but just maybe in a little different uh, order is we try to diminish the pain and inflammation posterior so sometimes a surgeon a physician that saw the athlete might even inject uh, the posterior shoulder which I'm perfectly fine with if they don't we we'll use laser therapy or iontophoresis ice to calm that area down we want to take a look at their range of motion. We do look at GERD. Um, I factor it into the equation. I look at horizontal adduction. I factor that into the equation. 
I look at total arc of motion, ER and IR added together, and that's probably the most significant for me. And I'll even look at shoulder flexion. Um, I look at their strength ratios, posterior cuff to anterior cuff. I look at the scapular position. I think that's critical, as was mentioned. And so we work on getting your cuff ratios back, working on scapular control, work on core, hips, as you heard before, and legs for that matter, try to promote some tissue healing, but really emphasize proprioception, good posture during throwing, good throwing mechanics, and a gradual return. So for me, it's normalizing the motion, scapular position, and dynamic control at end range ER. So key exercises are fast movements, like throwing a plyo ball up against the wall with a rhythmic stave at end range ER, plyometrics into a rebounder, higher speed with end range ER stabilization, resistance bands, faster speed ER with end range stabilization, because their symptoms with internal impingement would probably be late cocking, early acceleration. They may have some in uh, ball release and follow through, but most of them complain of late cocking and acceleration. So that's my approach to internal impingement. Uh, I know it was a little lengthy, I apologize, but this, this takes time to address it and unravel it. Many times these people have other common things like a weak right hip or, excuse me, on the throwing side, uh, hip weakness or scapular malpositioning, uh, lack of control of their pelvis as Stan talked about. So all those things I think need to be uh, evaluated and treated. Yeah, let me let me add a little bit to this um, uh, in regards to uh, everything that Kevin says is absolutely in regards to the exercise program uh, is minimal. One of the things that bothered me over the years is that at spring training, everybody does a physical, the orthopedist does a physical, uh, and he has them raise their arms up and go into flexion and everything else. You look at, then there's winging in the scapula, the inferior angle goes this way, and everything goes that way. If you did that at the end of the year, it looks exactly the same. In, in, in my experience, there doesn't seem to be any correction. Um, everyone's doing scapular exercises. They're doing everything else. Uh, I can't say enough about rhythmic stave and stability and all the stuff because it's an unstable joint to begin with. But, again, one of the stuff that we do a lot is closed kinetic chain work with the scapula. Uh, and that is a bear crawl, different types of bear crawls, different type of, of, of uh, tubing in regards to activating the serratus. What happens a lot of times on these exercises is uh, the serratus really doesn't work if you're not doing the exercise correctly. And so coaching and being able to get the right technique to do it the right way to actually uh, strengthen the serratus and have that athlete be able to feel that his serratus is working uh, from a baseball standpoint, not, it's not true of every sport, but in baseball, because I think protraction is so important um, that um, uh, and you're able to then get that normal functional uh, movement of the, the glenoid on the head of the humerus. And so uh, and we do a ton of that uh, in regards to the closed kinetic chain aspects as well as the other thing. We sure do retraction and a lot of the stuff that way. And then I guess I would ask Kevin, too, when you talk about proper posture, what does that look like from you from a pitching standpoint? I don't mean to take take your job, uh, Peter, on asking questions, but I, I, I heard that, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what Kevin's got to say about posture. 
Yeah, I think, you know, posture comes into multiple uh, um, definitions or um, functional activities. So the very basic would be how the person walks in the clinic and uh, negotiates at a very low level activity, like just taking a shirt off or just walking in. So if they have bad posture with that, I'm going to address that. Uh, and to your point, I think where you're getting is, um, you know, what is the posture during pitching? For me, you know, the, you know, the, the test that we use for scapular dyskinesis um, that was popularized by Kibler and McClure and, and those, I think, are good tests for everyone except the overhead athlete. Because in my opinion, scapular dyskinesis exists in almost all pitchers. The, the situation is how much do they have and can they control it? Just like internal impingement. I, I think Dr. Job and others have shown that internal impingement happens in cadavers. Um, internal impingement happens dynamically with MRI that you kind of fluctuate in and out of this symptomatic episode and so we try to calm it down and progress out of it. So as far as the posture, as far as throwing is, we try to make as much corrections as we can as far as you're in what we think from a biomechanics lab standpoint, what that normal range is. So they're not all going to be the same, obviously, but it's going to be in a range, just like saying somebody needs X amount of degrees of external rotation to throw, it's that range of external rotation. So for me, just as you said, the scapula is critical because the serratus is actually the second highest um, level of EMG activity in the whole body in the thrower, uh, only followed by, or only, um, only muscle group ahead of it would be the wrist flexors followed by the serratus. So the serratus is critical. And so obviously, because the serratus is, is protracting, the scapula is moving forward, and you'll see that medial border come off when they're doing plyos and things of that nature, and, and the follow-through phase of the throw, which I'm perfectly fine with as long as it doesn't get outside that range. So for me, I grade scapular dyskinesis one through four. You got a little bit of it or you got a lot of it, and I want my thrower to be a two-three, <laughs> if that makes sense. If you don't have enough, I think your shoulder is going to see more forces because your scapula, if you look at someone throwing without a shirt on and they ball release and follow through, the scapula literally protracts, uh, upwardly rotates to a degree, but it elevates and it moves in this kind of uh, diagonal pattern. It's coming off the thoracic wall. And if it doesn't come off, that means your shoulder joint is seeing all that stress. It's like having multiple springs. Well, I think I, I think one of the big things that you just said, uh, which I I think I finally recognized after 20 years of doing it wrong, um, is that the scapula in the throwing shoulder is different than anybody else, and that's that makes the difference. So if you're working on, you know, pitchers and and baseball uh, people, it, it's not the same as a posture with a different sport. And, uh, and again, I'm a little bit more straight protraction and keeping them there and making sure that medial border doesn't, doesn't work, but it, but it, it's in the rehab that it occurs. But it, it is really difficult, uh, to, to get that scapula to stay, uh, floating in that rib cage as it comes around. And, and when you look at a pitcher and you look at a hitter and you do it in slow motion, 
you kind of see exactly what they do. And I can tell you from working with pro athletes, when you actually talk about the serratus and talk about where the scapula is going and you show them how it's supposed to work and they start doing it, they go, yeah, that's, that's what I need to do. It, 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 it was amazing to me several years ago when this was introduced to me that the athlete knew right away, now I feel like I'm where I need to be from a pitching or a throwing standpoint as far as my shoulder and my scapula specifically. And Peter, somewhere to right go now, back on your oh, – Please. Sorry. I was, I was just going to say to somewhere go... right now, Ben Kibler is preparing his rebuttal to your statement that everyone has dyskinesis. But please, what were we going to say? Oh, well, the good part is we're doing a, a webinar tomorrow, Ben and I, so uh, he's going to hear <laughs> it tomorrow morning. Okay. <laughs> so we'll see what he says. But uh, okay. um, to go back to your question regarding um, the, the best exercise for serratus, if I could. So for me, I mean, you know, the best exercise or one I like, not maybe the best because the best is depending on who they are, what they're doing and things of that nature, is I like the wall slide. And we do multiple variations of it. So person basically is planking up against the wall, almost like in a push-up position, but their their elbows and forearms and, and um, the ulnar aspect of their of their hand is on the wall and they slide up and they slide down. So they're protracting into the wall. And we like that a lot. And I'll add resistance bands. I'll add manual resistance, especially in the in the lowering, the downward rotation. Um, so the resistance band is actually resisting protraction. I'll also do some quick punches with resistance bands as well, almost simulating like a, a throwing motion. So our arm is up at 90 degrees, and I'll be behind them with some resistance bands in their hand and also the shoulder complex and uh, just right over the anterior aspect. And they'll do like a punch forward, but simulating kind of the ball release follow through, which I think is, again, important for the serratus because it's so critical in the throwing motion, as Dan was mentioning. Yeah, I'd go, I'd go but the reason I make an emphasis about bear crawls and close kinetic chain is many people don't think about utilizing. And for us, it has been um, uh, a way to really isolate the serratus. And when you have someone, one, get into a bear crawl position, just, you know, up your knees and on your hands and pushing down into the ground, you can see if that medial board right away uh, uh, gets away from the, the, the rib cage. And then as they get stronger and they're able to hold that, then as they start to essentially crawl forward, move forward, you'll see after two or three at the beginning how the serratus uh, uh, fatigues, and now you see that medial border. And then that has to be corrected. Uh, and one of the things that we're seeing a lot more is uh, the coaching, uh, whether it be a strength coach or whether it be uh, an ATC or a PT, is not let them do an exercise incorrectly. And we see this all the time, um, especially at the pro level. You walk through a weight room, and you see a guy doing a lift that, that's wrong. And sometimes the person who's watching that doesn't correct it and they have to stop and correct it because what you're doing is producing bad movement uh, as opposed to good movement from a from a brain standpoint and, and being able to get that that pattern together in your head and make it reproducible so dyskinesia if you will or scapular dyskinesia feels bad and true protraction and doing it is it feels right and so they know when they're messing that up 
So that's kind of what we do, and, and that's just a, a takeoff, uh, again, on uh, so, some of the other things that we do to stabilize the, 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 the joint itself. Let me just elaborate just for one second, Peter, if I can, about this uh, concept of throwers or pitchers, overhead athletes have some degree of scapular dyskinesis. And the reason they have it is because they're hypermobile to begin with. Um, and so this could be a gymnast, this could be a baseball player, this could be a volleyball player, a swimmer. These are individuals, once they reach a certain level of expertise, they've reached that level because of hard practice and everything else and coaching, but probably to a large degree, a genetic predisposition. Um, classic would be like Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps is Michael Phelps. If you looked at his elbows, they hyperextend about 30 degrees. Um, he's very last. He's got unbelievable training, uh, um, you know, mindset or uh, determination. And, uh, he's, you know, he's a very gifted athlete, but his genetics is that hypermobility, which makes him a fantastic swimmer. And I think that's the case with a lot. I'm not going to say 100% of overhead throwers, but I'm going to say a high percentage of those individuals. And by the definition of it, it's just an alteration compared to the opposite side. It, it doesn't mean that your scapula is moving, you know, five centimeters. It just means it's different than the other side, which probably isn't a fair comparison anyway. I wanted to ask each of you real briefly, you know, the, um, You've got this discussion of the scapula and the serratus is awesome. And I think a lot of orthopedic surgeons are going to listen to all this and really engage with it because I think it's so important. One of the things that I want to ask you is, you know, you're, you guys have seen a huge variety of injuries. What is the injury where when, when the patient walks through your door with this diagnosis or after this procedure, you just feel with dread? Like, what is the, what is the one that challenges you the most? What's the one where you wish the surgeon would adequately warn the patient, this is going to be a difficult recovery? So what do you think, Stan? Um, well, I, I, th I think that about all shoulder injuries that they come in because the, the biggest problem with the shoulder is what the pain generator is. And we've seen study after study that looks at asymptomatic uh, pitchers with you know all kinds of terrible stuff on their MRI, um, yet they pitch for 10 years with hardly any problems. And so, you know, I think that's the biggest problem is trying to do that. So if a guy has a label tear and, and you know, he goes back posteriorly, we're not talking about the classic slap, slap from, you know, uh, 2 o'clock to, to 10 o'clock that may be a, a natural adaptation uh, for getting extra rotation or it could be pathological. But when it starts to go more posteriorly if, uh, in a pitcher, it starts to increase you know, is that the pain generator and how does that affect the rotator cuff? And typically you've got three or four things in the shoulder that are, that are, uh, could be symptomatic. So I think one of the things for me is I want to know before the surgery, why are you going after that particular structure? And then of course, once you get in there, you, you kind of look to, to, to fixing whatever you see, if it's significant. Uh, but again, you know, you know, 15 years ago, uh, there was a lot of slap tears that were that were re, uh, uh, repaired when they probably didn't need to be repaired. So 
so for me, the, 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 the scary part is, you know, did we get everything? Uh, or did we do too much on anything? And that's really, with the, for me, the art of the surgeon. Um, not just the science behind it, but the art. As they're inside the joint and looking at the structure, they said, well, this is causing the problem. And that's, a, that's harder than it sounds because you're, when, you're, when you, you scope the shoulder, you see all kinds of things in there that could be uh, the, the uh, uh, pain generator that's causing the problem. Um, and, you know, and, and prior to surgery, one of the things that we've used a lot, and I'm sure other teams do and other people, surgeons do, is, you know, if we're not sure, we'll do, you know, selective injection uh, and, and, and make it a diagnostic, you know, inject the AC joint, the subacromial spot, and the, and, uh, the uh, uh, glenohumeral joint to see if you can reproduce the pain before, does it go away with the lidocaine? And that way you can really get the pain generated, as opposed to the elbow, which is pretty easy to figure out what is going on in the elbow. The shoulder is a lot more difficult. So when that guy comes in there with a shoulder after shoulder surgery, um, you know, hopefully I've talked to the surgeon and he's already told me what he was going to do before the surgery, or I go to the surgery to see the surgery to, to have the decisions. I think that's what scares me so much, not necessarily a labral repair uh, or uh, even a rotator cuff repair, um, you know, is, that doesn't scare me as much as did we get the right thing. What are your thoughts, Kevin? Well, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm scared with rotator cuff repairs in a thrower. So, um, but I, I would say non-operatively, the ones that are difficult for me would be thoracic outlet in particular. Um, sometimes they can be tough to to chase. Sometimes lat strains high grade lat strains are very difficult uh, at the shoulder as far as post-op um, i don't really see that many uh, i see very few shoulder surgeries and throwers nowadays when i compare that to years ago and slap repairs so for me if i see a, a shoulder surgery in a thrower i'm concerned probably my biggest when i say concern it just means my radar goes up and you know i've got a really reel this player in, this athlete in, and make sure they're doing everything possible. But for me, probably the cuff is the most difficult. Early on, it's not that bad. It's not even that bad starting a throwing program. But once they get back to high-level throwing, because of the forces going across the cuff, they usually have complaints of pain. They're very difficult. Pitchers, uh, after cuff repairs, as we know, according to literature, is a very low number have made it back. Position players, not that concerned about. I think I've had good, good success with it. Um, Non-throwing shoulders because of traumatic injury to the cuff, not a problem. But pitchers, gradual onset cuff failure is a big problem. And then a little bit with slaps, only because I think the slap tear, the classic peel back, is an adaptation. So obviously our concern is that they don't become tight afterwards, that we move them right away, we get their motion back. We did a study in our biomechanics lab here with Dr. Fleisick where we looked at slap repairs. And um, on the table, their motion looks good. But when they throw, they say they feel tight. And they lose horizontal abduction. And they lose external rotation, which gives them a loss of, uh, of ball velocity and just the ability to generate force for distance. So, you know, I'm, I'm concerned with anyone that has shoulder surgery. I think, Peter, you wrote an article on shoulder surgery and baseball using HITS data. 
uh, showing after surgery in in all shoulders about 37% return. If, if I'm quoting that wrong, please correct me. But the uh, um, you know, but I think there are more times when when you do see a full circus rotator cuff, um, which is typically death to a pitcher. Uh, we're seeing some of those guys come back. Uh, one because of the technique uh, of uh, reattachment into the footprint, um, and I think they had a better chance from a structural standpoint. Yet still, the outcomes are 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 not great. Um, but uh, on a guy who you know wants to take a shot at it. Uh, he's got a better shot than he did 10 years ago. Well, that's all about the time we have for this podcast. I, I really want to thank both of you for coming on. You guys are both awesome, and your insights are going to be super interesting to our listeners. So for all of our Shoulder Nebel listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Grant Gierges from the American Shoulder Nebel Surgeons Technology Committee. I am so excited that you're joining or that you're enjoying the ASCS podcast. It's one of my favorites too. There's many places you can get the podcast, but one place that might be convenient for you with other similar content is the ASES app. So that's right. ASES can be right in your pocket on your smartphone. Uh, You can download it from the App Store or either Apple or Android App Store. Uh, Just look for ASES and the ASES logo. You'll need your ASES login to enter, which you can get from the ASCS, and that'll allow you to unlock all the member benefits and member features. Uh, Some of these features are the ability to connect with other ASCS surgeons, find out about upcoming grant opportunities, abstract deadlines, and meetings. And eventually, as the content grows and grows, we'll have more than just this fantastic podcast. We also have uh, recorded lectures, videos, and other media. So check out the ASCS app. Let us know what you think and enjoy uh, all that ASCS has to offer through the app. Thank you. Grant, how much does the app cost? The app is free. Well, Grant, we appreciate all the work you guys have done on the app. It sounds awesome. And um, I think that all of our listeners should go check it out because certainly it's just another way to access this content as well as others, other content that's similar to it that I think you would enjoy.